NASA's next moon rocket has left the building. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's mega rocket, the Space Launch System, has left the Vehicle Assembly Building at Kennedy Space Center and made its way to a launch pad ahead of an uncrewed mission around the moon and back later this year. It's the first time a moon-class rocket has seen Launch Complex 39B since the days of Apollo and marks the start of NASA's newest moonshot missions called Artemis. But before it can embark on its first mission to the moon, SLS must go through a critical test called the Wet Dress Rehearsal, simulating the events of launch, stopping just short of firing the vehicle's four main engines and two solid rocket boosters. For more, we'll speak with Are We There Yet's intern Beatrice Oliveira, who was at the rollout event last week. And to learn more about the mission ahead and what it might be like to fly on SLS, we'll speak with NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik. Then, a Martian orbiter is tracking weather on the Red Planet. Launched by the United Arab Emirates, the HOPE orbiter aims to better understand the atmosphere of Mars and its weather. We'll speak with lead scientist Hesse Amatoshi about the mission so far and what the UAE's first mission to Mars is learning about the Red Planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. It was a moment years in the making. Standing atop its mobile launch platform more than 30 stories high, the SLS rocket made its way, quite slowly, on the Crawler Transporter 2 to a launch pad at Kennedy Space Center last week. Spectators and reporters were there for this milestone moment of NASA's new moonshot, including Are We There Yet's intern Beatrice Oliveira. She joins us now to talk about that event. Beatrice, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Bia, this is a massive rocket, right? I mean, it's some 300 feet tall, five and a half million pounds. What was it like seeing something so enormous uh, up close like that? Let me tell you, this thing is huge. But seeing it for the first time was amazing, right? It was my first time at the Kennedy Space Center, and it had to be one of the most memorable experiences. And seeing this rocket coming out of the VAB and knowing that it was history in the making, it gave me goosebumps everywhere. And seeing it for the first time, this thing is huge. And it I didn't expect it to be this big. Um, I thought I knew it was big, but I didn't know it was this big. And seeing it for the first time, making its way down its runway, it was the best thing ever. And during that moment, I knew that this was going to happen like we were one step closer to this massive goal that everyone wants and I was taking like pictures like bursting pictures on my phone and I sent it to everyone I know expressing how beautiful and how big this rocket really is incredible first time to be out at Kennedy Space Center to see a rocket that big huh so so Bia tell us a bit about how the rocket made it to the pad. Um, it, it's on this um, this massive machine that takes it down this crawler way, and it moved quite slowly, right? I'm going to tell you, if you blink, you'll miss it. But <laughs> So as, it, as the SLS was making its way, it was transported by the Kennedy Space Center Crawler Transporter 2, and it was at the killer speed of 0. 0.8 miles per hour, <laughs> right? So the transporter was making its way to the 39B launch pad, which is four miles away from the VAB. 
making it to the pad on last Friday morning is is a milestone moment for for NASA's Artemis program and for the development of SLS. This is the first time a moon rocket has made it to a launch pad at Kennedy Space Center since since the Apollo days, uh, some half a century ago. I mean, this is a big deal. Uh, you were there. What was the mood like at KSE? So the best part of this experience was the amount of people that showed up. I didn't think it was going to be that much people wanting to see this, right? It felt like I was in a movie. like, And as the SLS was announced that it was on the move, people just started clapping and cheering. And you could see the utter joy that people was experiencing with this rocket coming out. But as soon as you saw the glimpse of the rocket making its way out of the VAB, people just kind of went silent. And it was like this shock of seeing the biggest rocket that you can think of and knowing that it's going to take us back to the moon. With the, the, the moving of the rocket to, to the pad is just one step. Um, and now that the Artemis 1 SLS rocket is at Launch Complex 39B, what's, what's ahead for the mission? So now that it's there at the launch pad, it's going to go through a wet dress rehearsal. And this rehearsal will happen on April 3rd. And during this rehearsal, they will be filling the rocket's propellant tank with over 700,000 gallons of liquid. Then they will practice every phase of the countdown and they will prepare it for the launch. And when they get to the last 10 seconds, they will cut it off so it can become a simulated liftoff. So it won't actually be leaving the ground, but still a very important milestone in uh, the test campaign of Artemis II. Um, Well, that was Are We There Yet's intern, Beatrice Oliveira, who covered the rollout of SLS at Kennedy Space Center last week. Bea, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also out at the Kennedy Space Center was Randy Bresnik, a NASA astronaut who's clocked 149 days in space. As part of his work with the astronaut office, he's in charge of keeping an eye on space vehicles his colleagues might one day ride to space, including SLS and the Orion Deep Space Capsule. I caught up with Bresnik just outside the VAB last week before SLS crossed the threshold of the building. So so tell us a bit about uh, the significance of today. This is an exciting moment, right? It's a huge moment. The vehicle assembly building that you're going to see the Artemis One rocket and spacecraft roll out of, it hasn't had something this big, a moon-class vehicle rolling out of it since 1972, if you count uh, Apollo 17. But if you count Apollo Soyuz, where we still had a Saturn V going out, you know, 1975. I mean, and this vehicle was built to send rocket's you know, to places other than low Earth orbit. And we're going to see the first of our next, you know, uh, giant leap forward with Artemis 1 coming out of there here in a few hours. And that is going to be a sight to behold. I, I can't wait to see the, the top of the last, you know, uh, you know, scraping the top of the, the doorway as it comes out. And we look back and we see how many stories tall that is. Just, it's going to be it's be great to see. Now, I wish it was going out for launch, but we got to do this wet dress rehearsal first. And let's talk a bit about that wet dress rehearsal. You know, you are responsible for, you know, 
overseeing these vehicles for the astronaut corps that they that, that will be riding these in the future. This wet dress rehearsal is very important for that, right? For the, for the safety of, of the Artemis mission. Tell us a bit about the things that you're going to be specifically looking at, and and why wet dress rehearsal is so important to the Artemis campaign. Well, um, it's the first time we've put this whole vehicle with an Orion on top, an integrated stack, the the uh, second stage, the ICPS with it as well. That we've hooked it up to the umbilicals. We're going to go ahead and roll it out on the transport, and then hook it up with a launch pad to the systems that will fuel it. And so watching us go through all those connections, those hardware points where we're doing it for the very first time, and then being able to fuel it with that you know, 700,000 pounds of you know, cryogenic fuels, and then take it all the way down to you know, 10 minutes before launch, simulated 10 minutes before launch, and stop the clock. And so just like we would if it was a crude launch where we um, have the opportunity to hold a launch, and then, or if we have to scrub a launch, weather or something like that, you know, this will then prove all the way out to the point of actual launch that we can fuel it, defuel it, and not, you know, hurt the vehicle. That our operations are good, our our um, our hardware is good, the techniques and training we've had for all our ground folks to be able to on the ground side do that. Um, so it's this, this full rehearsal that allows us to give us the confidence when we go into the Artemis II mission with crew on board. It's not the first time we've done it. We know that this stuff works. And one thing that's neat is we had the green run over at Stennis with this core stage. Um, and that really brought down a lot of our risk because, you know, if we had not done that, we wouldn't have, you know, run the engines. We would not have fully fueled it like that. And so the fact that we were able to take it there, says, put it on the test end, run it for a full duration, come out here, that gives us confidence now for the Artemis One. Now, this is the part that we couldn't do there on the test stand. And to be able to, you know, use the actual launch launch facility. This is probably like no other rocket that the astronauts in the astronaut corps have have ever been on before. Not in this generation, <laughs> that's for sure. What what kind of advice are you giving your colleagues as someone who is who has gone to space, albeit on something a little bit smaller than this? What what are you telling them to expect for for these Artemis two and Artemis three launches? Um, what we can expect, you know, is the acceleration. You know, will be you know somewhat similar to shuttle. You know, we've got a really heavy vehicle. Um, we've got solid rocket motors on the side. We've got RS-25s on the bottom. This time we got four of them. This time we got a five-stage, you know, solid rocket motors. Um, and so the ride, I think, you know, the fact that we don't have a shuttle strapped to the side, you know, using aerodynamics, you know, going through that, and we got a, a rocket, you know, where we've got just the uh, the crew on the very pointy end, should be, I think, a little smoother, but still solid rocket motors burn like solid rocket motors. And so you're just you're flying on a shuttle, and when I flew on a Soyuz, was night and day. I mean, those solids are kind of going, you're bouncing around, kind of like on a, a bumpy dirt road or, or cobblestones, whereas uh, the, when you're doing just the, uh, the liquid uh, motors, it's much smoother, and you're just kind of being smoothly pushed back uh, into the seat. And so we expect that it'll be, you know, more shuttle-like with those solids, but it's going to be, you know, a bigger vehicle, you know, and it's going to burn, you know, not so much longer, but it's going to burn, you know, more uh, to be able to get all that mass to orbit. This is a massive vehicle. It's taken years of development. It's faced some delays, but now it's finally going to emerge from the vehicle assembly building. What's the... Uh, the emotion uh, with you and your astronaut corps colleagues about this particular moment in history. What is it like for you guys? Probably the closest thing I can think of is, you know, when uh, a couple is pregnant and you know it's it's growing inside the mother and, you know, you're waiting for that exciting moment. You know, what's it going to look like? What's going to act like? Well, you know, all this development of the nine months uh, of, of a baby developing. And then finally the birth happens. And, you know, it's just overwhelming excitement and overwhelming emotions. I mean, the fact that 
I was working on Orion back in 20, you know, 06 and 07. <laughs> and so to have this finally, you know, it, it's, it's, the, it's really happening, you know, kind of moment um, is so exciting. And I think, um, like I said, I wish it was launching tomorrow because I just thought, go, go, go. Um, but to, just to get it moving and get, you know, we know we have to do uh, the rollout. We got to do the wet dress rehearsal. We got to then roll it back to, the, and then we got to do the final preps and get it out for launch. But when we roll out for launch, we will have already done the rollout. We will have already done the hookup at the launch pad. We will have already done the, you know, the fueling and everything. And so, just the uh, um, confidence that that part, you know, is all going to work, has uh, all been played out. And so that just will make the launch day that much more exciting because you go, okay, chances of a scrub, you know, are a lot less than if we hadn't done this. Uh, with a new vehicle, are there any uh, particular things you do to christen a new vehicle like this? Oh, well, I feel we, like you're not breaking a champagne bottle yeah, over, not. right? And we didn't, you know, we didn't name it, you know, like a crew would, you know, if they were on board. But we do have, you know, the NASA had the... Um, uh, outreach event where they named the mannequin inside and named the two um, uh, radiation dummies, for lack of a better word. You know, and so you know that type of engagement allowed the, the public to then join in um, with this Artemis One mission. And so that's going to be uh, you know something that hopefully you know gets kids talking. You know, and gets them excited. Hey, what's what's this you know particular um, you know what's the point of these things? Why are these in? The, why are they in there? Oh well, we're going into deep space. Oh, we need to see if the human beings can be shielded enough from the deep space radiation. So you got one mannequin without any radiation, and you got one with a radiation vest on, and we're going to get the data. And that's the neat part about this whole. You know, it's an uncrewed flight, but it's going to bring back so much data that allows us to feel confident that the system we built over all these years is going to work and be safe for the crew when we put them on board. And finally, Randy, this first uh, Artemis One mission will be uncrewed. The next one will have a crew. Um, any insight as to who that might be, and, and may it be you? Will you be riding on, on these Artemis missions? We, we don't know the crew, and hopefully by the you know, end of this, the mission will go off in June, and by the end of the year we'll be able to sign a crew about 18 months prior to the launch. Tell you, every single person in a blue flight suit would you know is uh, ready to go and volunteer for that Artemis II flight. And I'm sure there are plenty of people, former astronauts who would volunteer for that flight, and plenty of young people that are not yet, you know, our future astronauts that will be volunteering for that flight. And so we're, we're all excited for it, and we just need to get it going because we need to get Artemis 1 out and Artemis 2 out and then get people on the moon. That was NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik. Still to come, a tiny Martian orbiter is making big discoveries, including a look at the planet's atmosphere and weather. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. A Martian orbiter is tracking weather on the Red Planet. Launched by the United Arab Emirates, the HOPE orbiter aims to better understand the atmosphere of Mars and its weather. We're joined by lead scientist Hesse Almatoshi to talk about the mission so far and what the UAE's first mission to Mars is learning about the Red Planet. She begins the conversation with an overview of UAE's HOPE probe mission. So the announcement of the Emirates-Mars mission was way back in 2014 by the UAE government. The objective was to build a mission to arrive to Mars before the 50th anniversary of UAE, and that took place in 2021. And um, the scientific objectives of this mission is to study the Martian atmosphere 
uh, we wanted to bring a very unique coverage in a way that we're able to study the whole planet in addition to the diurnal variation in every season as well. So to get a very full picture of the Martian atmosphere dynamics and how it links from the lower atmosphere up to the upper atmosphere. Uh, as a layperson like myself, um, some of the images that are coming back from the HOPE orbiter are just absolutely stunning um, and impressive. But the science that you are all collecting um, is really kind of really showing some interesting things about Martian weather and, and what's happening in the atmosphere on Mars. Can you kind of talk a bit about um, some of the findings uh, that you've uncovered with this mission? Yes, the, the orbit that we got in this Emirates-Mars mission is very unique. Like no other spacecraft had flown to such orbits, like a 20,000 kilometer by 43,000 kilometers. So it's very elliptical and very high altitude. And it is what enabling our science uh, to be very unique because we're able to look at the whole planet and to look at the different times where usual other missions that went into Mars were able to be close uh, to Mars. So whenever you are sampling like different times of the day, you would be able like only to measure the weather, for example, two times a day, let's say at 3 a.m. and 3 p.m. So what's happening in between is really missing and ambiguous, and we're depending on models to try to predict what's happening. And that's where the uniqueness aspect of the mission comes in, because it's able to sample like different timings within the day, so you're able to see like how things are evolving or what changes are happening within the atmosphere. And this is the core of the findings that we're getting to see, because it's enabling us to see like different perspectives of the atmosphere that we haven't seen before. And very recently, like we've released images that we've captured through the Hope Hope, showing the evolution of regional dust storms at Mars. And that was really amazing because we would be able to see like at different times how the storms evolved and how it spread out and diffused into a dust haze over the planet, which was really amazing. Another findings that we were able to see, because like the Hope Hope is looking at the day side and the night side of Mars, we're able to see a lot of discrete aurora. So like when you look at the night side images that we have um, in the whole probe, like nearly more than 60% of them shows discrete aurora. So this is like another like huge field that we can tap into using the data that we got and the coverage that is enabled by the mission. Mm -hmm. So you're able to, to see this kind of whole planet whole day approach because of this particular orbit that, that the Hope probe is in. But also tell me a bit about the, 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 the scientific instruments that are on there um, that are able to capture um, this data and, 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 and really dig deep into the atmosphere of Mars. How, how is the technology on the spacecraft helping you do that? Yes. So we do have three scientific instruments on board of the whole probe. Two of them are designed to study the lower atmosphere, and one of them is designed to study the upper atmosphere. And the three instruments actually really work together because we do have a synergetic observations between them. So whenever we take observations of the lower atmosphere, we do take one in the upper atmosphere to enable us to try and understand the link in between them. So whenever something is happening in the lower atmosphere, let's say like there is dust storms, we want to know how that impacts the upper atmosphere. And let's say the atmospheric loss, for example, of hydrogen and oxygen. So that's very interesting about the dynamics of the three instrumentations we have. So for the lower atmosphere, we do have one that is called the Emirates Mars Infrared Spectrometer. 
we call it emirs. This is when we're looking at the planet from the thermal uh, side. So we get information about the dust, the temperature, the ice, and even the water vapor. And the other instrument that is complementing EMERS and looking into the lower atmosphere, we call it EMERS Exploration Imager, EXI. So this is like a camera that has like a visible bands, so we can have like beautiful images of Mars from red, green, and blue bands. And then we're looking into ultraviolet bands as well. So it gives us information about ozone as well, and even the clouds and the ice. And then the third instrument, which is looking at the upper atmosphere of Mars, it's called the Emirates Mars Ultraviolet Spectrometer. This is looking at um, the extreme ultraviolet and far ultraviolet bands, giving us information about carbon uh, monoxide, the oxygen, and even the hydrogen, specifically like in the thermosphere level and the upper atmosphere level, which you call it the exosphere. And this is the mean where all particles that are escaping the Mars must go through it. So it's very exciting, and that's why like, we have such orbits to try and see and observe like, the hydrogen and oxygen at such high altitude where we believe that they are escaping the planet. Hessa, mm -hmm. I'm sure planetary scientists are just loving all of this data that um, the HOPE probe is providing, this insight into both the upper and, and lower atmosphere of Mars. But you also mentioned you're tracking these dust storms on the planet and, and their um, kind of how they form and, and, and where they go uh, because you can have this, this kind of long-form loop of imaging that's happening from, from the HOPE probe. I'm wondering if uh, missions on the ground, let's say a, a rover, um, could use this data to help you know, prepare for possible dust storms or for mission managers to plan where to actually go um, and avoid these these weather occurrences happening on, on the planet. That's very useful, actually. Like, having this kind of holistic view of the planet uh, to monitor, like, how these events within Mars, like, evolve and understand, um, like, how, especially, like, how dust storms, because it's very active on Mars, and, and they occur very frequently and annually, like, through the season. So trying to understand how they evolve and how they dissipate within the planet is very important, both for robotic missions, like on the ground, and even for orbiters. Because as we do have rovers on the surface, they get impacted by dust because we do have electronics. And most of them depends on the sun. Like they do have like solar arrays that are depending on the sun. So whenever like you do have like dust in there, so that impacts like the charging of these optics or these instruments. Um, so it's it definitely like very important, and I should mention like that this area of research is very current, and there's a lot of unknowns that we still don't know. So just having such coverage provided by the whole probe will advance our understanding of dust storms and their evolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, all eyes were on these Mars missions that arrived last year. There was, it was your mission, uh, a mission sent by the Chinese Space Agency, and of course the, the NASA mission, um, uh, opportun or Perseverance. Um, it's been a year. Um, ha has this mission met expectations, exceeded expectations? I mean, if, if you were to give the Hope Probe a, a letter grade, uh, what would it get after its first year? That's a very interesting and exciting question. If we look at the Emirates Mars mission, the Emirates Mars mission was designed for two different objectives. We do have programmatic objectives and we do have scientific objectives that we've been talking about. When it comes to programmatic objectives on why the UAE had pursued a Mars mission, 
mainly the reason for that was developing capabilities within the UAE community in terms of science and technology. And the changes that we've been observing since this mission has been announced in 2014 until launch in 2020, the change is enormous. Like we can see like students being inspired and getting into sciences. We could see centers like focusing on space science emerging within the community. Like it had been huge. So the mission can be considered a success since it's launched from that kind of programmatic aspect. When it comes to the science, after after the launch and after the instrumentations are there within the orbit and taking a lot of data, we could notice that the instruments are capable to giving us more than what it was designed for. Like we're there to study the atmosphere of Mars, right? But we're looking into the data and we're looking at discrete aurora very regularly appearing, for example, in our night side of data just because we do have instrumentations that are very sensitive to detect such phenomena. And this is beyond the objectives that we've designed this mission for, but it's an active area of studies that we're very excited to contribute to. We're also, for example, having uh, some data capacity that enabling us to do more observations that we need. So we're using these kind of uh, data capacity to do even more unique observations. So for example, like we use the camera that we have on board to do some like high cadence imagery. So we're taking like, uh, for example, nine to 10 images, like five minutes apart to see like a short animation or a video in a specific place. And we had this like to see like some clouds movement. And that was amazing, like to see the capabilities that we do have within the spacecraft and what kind of science return that we can have from it. Mm -hmm. So a very successful first year with um, a very optimistic years to come is is what I'm gathering, right? I mean, it, it looks like this mission is going to continue to collect data and, and exceed expectations of, of both you and, and the scientific community. I mean, what, what can we look forward to uh, in the coming weeks, months, and years um, with this mission? It's honestly very exciting for us. Like the mission was designed to stay at Mars for one full Martian year. And we're almost by the mid of it. And, and I feel like just months passes so fast. So like by next year, like by the beginning of April, we'll complete our science phase. But we're looking forward like right now into preparing proposals for extended missions because we see a lot of value that we can get from this mission. And, and that's something like we're, we're hoping that we are able to get so we can continue like getting and collecting information about the Martian atmosphere and Mars as a planet, because we all know no Martian year is the same. So whatever we learned about Mars up to now, we'll see something different in the next year. And that's something that interests us. That was Hesse Almatoshi, lead scientist on UAE's Hope Orbiter mission. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week is from Matthew Petty. It's his last week here at WMFE. He's heading to our sister station, WUSF, in Tampa starting next month. Petty is one of the main reasons we cover space here at WMFE and sent me on my first space assignment back in 2014. Matt, thanks for all your hard work and dedication to this newsroom, this beat, and this show. We'll miss you, but can't wait to hear about your next mission at WUSF at Astra. Production assistance this week is from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira, and support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>